Welcome to Hotter Than Ever, where we uncover the unconscious rules we've been following, we break those rules, and we find a new path to being freer, happier, sexier, and more self-expressed. I'm your host, Erin Keating. I took last week off for a family vacation, and I hope you use that time to listen to the episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with music producer Barb Morrison, whose book Bottoming for God just came out, or my talk with actor and firefighter Alicia Reiner. Take a deep dive and go back for those and other episodes whenever you get a chance. In this episode, I talk with writer Kelly McMasters about her incredible memoir, The Leaving Season. She speaks as beautifully and profoundly as she writes, and we get really deep about the fantasy of marriage, the pain and liberation of divorce, and the unexpected freedoms that come with being a single mom. This was a timely and emotional one for me, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. Check it out. Kelly McMasters is an essayist, a professor, a mother, and a former bookshop owner. She is the author of several books, including the beautiful and moving memoir in essays, The Leaving Season, which we will talk about today in depth. And she is the co-editor of the wonderful ABA national bestseller, Wanting Women Writing About Desire. Her essays, reviews, and articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post Magazine, the Paris Review, and all the fancy places. Welcome to Hotter Than Ever, Kelly. Thanks so much, Erin. I'm so excited to be here and to talk to you today. You have such an NPR voice. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just start uh, in talking about your book. Tell us about your memoir, The Leaving Season. I want to talk about that story, and then I want to talk about what has happened in your life since then. Absolutely. So this book essentially is about what happens when everything is almost perfect And yet, uh, in order to survive, you have to make a choice between leaving a life that you love or leaving yourself. And I had to make that tough call. And it's not for everybody, right? I think everybody has those moments in their life, whether they're leaving a marriage, a relationship, a job, a place, an idea of themselves behind. But that was where this book sort of cohered all the essays surround that idea of leaving. It's so interesting that it's essays because it really does read like a complete memoir until kind of the back third where it starts to feel um, reflective in a different way. I really loved it. I really related to so much of it. And I've recently come to realize that I'm like obsessed with male-female dynamics. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like to think of myself as this feminist and this independent person. But really, at the end of the day, I'd be lying if I said I didn't care the most about love. Mm. Yes. And and love is a four-letter word, right? Oof. Uh, <laughs> it's complicated. It is complicated. And it's interesting because in the book, you start as one kind of person and you end as another kind of person. And mm. in the beginning, for people who haven't read it yet, because I know you will all read it after this interview. You're a writer in New York City. You're in love with this hot, brooding painter, my description. You dreamed about getting out of the city for a simpler life. You did that. You left the city together, gradually, and then all together, and then had kids in the country. So you went from being this sophisticate in New York with this artistic life to a rural mom of two. And I wonder whether life in rural Pennsylvania met your fantasy vision of it, of what it was going to be. I mean, obviously I read the book, so this is a leading question. How much did the fantasy match the reality? And then what changed with kids in the picture? Because my experience is that everything fucking changes and everyone tells you that oh, everything will change when you have kids, but you have no idea what they mean or the depth with which that truth will live in you. That's so true, Erin. I think much of the country and living there did meet a lot of my kind of citified objectification, imagination, 
fetishizing Mm -hmm. (laughs) of what country life could be. And what I think happened as I lived there, first, that house started as a weekend getaway. Mm -hmm. And I think that in particular is a very different experience when you're going somewhere for the weekend and then you can leave again. It's not your real life. And then it became our real and only life. And that crossover period, I think, is when things became unrecognizable, myself included. Mm. And so I think that for me, for our family, was the tipping point. And that was years. I think a lot of people probably could understand this. During the pandemic, so many folks were able to leave the cities because they didn't have to go to work anymore in the office and they could zoom in from anywhere. And I think the joke was among my friends who had lived in the country for a long time was, we'll see when winter comes, once Mm. they hit a real winter. And, And I do think that that was a surprise for a lot of people. For me, I think it did occur at the same time as becoming a mother. And I was a reluctant mother. It's not something that I necessarily imagined for myself, even wanted for myself. And even after it happened, I was not a natural mother. What does that mean? I I, I guess the best way I can describe it is I thought I was broken in that way, that I didn't get some gene that I just knew what to do or wasn't enjoying it the way I imagined I should be. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the bullshit narrative we're fed (laughs) about what motherhood is like. You know, that's the Instagram version of motherhood. That is not real. It's not. And I now granted this was 13 years ago, pre Instagram, all of that. I didn't know that. I really didn't. I was an only child and babies freak me the fuck out. I mean, even now I say that I love my kids, but I do not like children. (laughs) Mine are amazing, but I don't want to really be around kids. It's not a natural place for me. They're a little scary. And then suddenly I was on this hilltop by myself with two of them. And where we were was pretty rural. It was about 35 minutes to a hospital, 30 minutes to milk or baby Tylenol. So it was very dramatic. And people, right? I didn't have my family close to me. It took me a while to find a community of women. And really, when I did, that's when things started to turn around. But for so long, I just felt so alone. And for me, the the motherhood story changes when I did finally uh, leave my marriage. I thought being a single mom would be the scariest, worst thing in the world. Oh, I just want to scream from (laughs) the rooftops how freeing and amazing. And that was how I felt that I became a mother. That's what it took. I needed to leave my family behind to break that up. Well, and in that moment, you reclaimed your agency, too. Yes. I really felt that in the book. I felt like you're in the country, subject to nature primarily, and isolation and the vagaries of your dynamic with your ex. And I did, you know, it's funny that you say you don't see yourself as a natural mother because there's so much in the way that you describe the joy of showing nature to your children and how you inhabited the time with them, because it seems to me that in the country time is different, and how you settled into routines with them. It seemed very natural to me in the reading of it, but obviously the writing of something, the reading of something is very different than the living of something. And you're not describing 24 hours in a day, you're describing beautiful moments of sharing the natural world with your children, as opposed to the sort of day-to-day in and out grind and frustrations. I felt an essential powerlessness and captivity in early Mm -hmm. motherhood where I was like, these people are beautiful and incredible and this is a miracle, but I'm not joining the mom group because I'm going (laughs) back to work. And I don't relate to people who fetishize the mommy thing because I've always been identified with myself as a creative person, a professional person, a worldly person, which I think you probably did too, Mm -hmm. um, living the New York City life that you did before you moved to the country. So it's just so interesting to hear you say, 
what you thought of your motherhood at the time and the difference between how you describe it in the book. Yeah, I think you're right that nature was a real access point for mothering for me. Mm. I was a landscape writer before I was a mother. And that is the way that I process. I think what about and landscape? see. <laughs> what is a landscape writer? <laughs> That's a, I think it's made up. <laughs> but you write I about think, nature? Is that what it is? So you had mentioned Wanting, the anthology that came out this year, Women Writing About Desire. I had a previous anthology that I co-edited with the same co-editor, Margot Kahn, and it's called This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. And when we were doing interviews and talking about that, a few people called me a landscape writer, and I'd never felt so identified. <laughs> I pinned to a tray with a little label yeah. on it. <laughs> Basically, yes. And, <laughs> and it felt like, oh, that's what I am. My first book was called Welcome to Shirley, a memoir from an atomic town. And I realized that the way that I process, the way that I see through essay is very much landscape driven. That is what I use as sort of a crystal to refract my ideas, my concerns, mm. my considerations, my questions. And and that's what I do, not just on the page, I realize, but in life. And so for me, just the walk up and down the driveway when my son was learning how to walk, just up and down and up and down and up and down. The way that I could keep myself activated was, wow, look at that mushroom. What did it look like yesterday? What does it look like today? Mm. What kind of fern is this? How is it unfurling today? What is it going to do tomorrow? Look at the sky. Look at the grass. That was the way I could build conversation with my children in a way that worked for them because kids, before I stop seeing, right? At some point, we all just stop seeing. Mm. We forget to look at the sky every day. We forget to look and wonder, so much wonder and curiosity. Yeah. So that was that was a really beautiful point of access with my kids. We happened to be in the country in a place where that was everywhere. And so that was that felt very healthy. On the other hand, the isolation of that was that there was <laughs> the best way I can describe it is no audience. I, that sounds mm. very strange, but at first I thought, well, there's no community, but it was more than that because when there's no one there to see or hear what's happening in your house, it's sort of like a play that's on a stage with no one watching. Oh. And it can be wonderful and mm. private, but can also be very scary. Because there's no witness, mm -hmm. right? Like an audience is a witness to a narrative, to an experience, to a life. And that's one thing that's so amazing about New York City is just it's, it's constantly witnessing and being witnessed. Mm. And wow, that's a really deep observation. I have felt like marriage feels like that sometimes. Just marriage itself, even not in rural Pennsylvania. <laughs> yes. You're yes. just in this thing with someone and no one sees it except you. And that's why other people can't really give you advice about your marriage because they don't actually know the texture of it or the feeling of it. And you really just have to trust your own. You have to be your own audience. You have to be your own witness. But it's really hard when you're inside a dynamic, especially with children, because your primary focus is their needs and making sure they're okay. And somehow it's really easy to disappear inside of that. Oh, yes. And disappear is exactly what it feels like. And I remember so clearly one afternoon just being out on a hill and I loved it there. There's one point in the book where I talk about it as where I was happiest and my editor flagged that mm. on one of the drafts and said, you just spent 200 pages explaining that <laughs> All of this, I don't really believe that you're happy. And I thought, you know what? You're right. And I went back into it and I thought about that. And it's where I believed I could be my happiest. Mm. It didn't happen, but it was the possibility. And I think that also is so true of marriage or that type of relationship where there's so much hope involved and magic and magical thinking. Mm. of who you think this person can be, who you think you can be, who you think you might be able to be together. And it's a fantasy. 
Yeah. Right. It's this made up idea. And I loved when Maggie Smith, who has a gorgeous divorce book called You Can Make This Place Beautiful, she read this book in an early draft. And she said that this book navigates through and out of the very real yet unmappable space that a marriage occupies. Mm. And that idea of the unmappable space, I think, is what you're talking about, Aaron. And I think anybody in any intimate relationship, I think there's something specific to two adults choosing to build a family together and relying on each other when you're tied only by desire mm. and not by circumstance or blood right. chosen family right as well as biological i know a friend of mine who's going through a divorce right now and and she has put so much stock in the relief once she signs the divorce papers <laughs> right i keep telling her <laughs> it it changes nothing it it already is what it is and and a paper just in the same way that it doesn't make you married it doesn't make you not Oh, yeah, I'm going through a divorce and I'm just inching closer to getting that paperwork done. And I'm so excited for the marker that that is. Yes. But I also know that I have children with this person and we're going to have to work out our dynamic for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And God, nothing makes me more angry <laughs> or sad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'd love it if you could read an excerpt from the book that talks about what you were thinking or not thinking, <laughs> <laughs> which I totally relate to when you decided to move to Pennsylvania together. Great. This is from an essay called The Ghosts in the Hills. I never thought we would own a gun, never mind multiple guns. I never thought we would take such pleasure from shooting at our makeshift range at the top of the hill, candy-colored paint can lids strung along two-by-fours like some modernist sculpture, bullet holes puncturing the pretty dots. I never thought we would shoot an animal from our porch. But since moving to the country full-time, we both seemed to be transforming. R was a painter, had his favorite route in the Met, his bookcase full of monographs and back issues of Modern Painters magazine. But he was not part of the establishment, did not talk theory, did not write reviews, did not wear sunglasses indoors and make snide <laughs> remarks to a bevy of skinny, black-clad artists in the back corner of gallery shows. He looked more like a construction worker than a fine artist. When he told people he was a painter, often they responded with, like, a house painter? This ability to defy expectations was one of the things I appreciated most about him. Before marriage, our relationship seemed to thrive on the unconventional. But now, surrounded by the Pennsylvania woods, instead of the tight belt of the city's skyscrapers, we kept running aground when it came to questions of family and providing, and who is responsible for what. We'd never combined our finances, never really talked about budgets or planning, aside from whether we'd be able to cover the mortgage that month. Up until then, I'd liked our separateness. It was a point of pride. I hadn't even considered changing my name. Convention? No thank you. I felt fairly certain about what I did not want my marriage to look like, but I'd never stopped to really think about what I did want. I think I just assumed that moving to the country would allow our relationship to inhale a different kind of oxygen, that we would find our new natural shape together outside the city, in the same way an indoor plant might if transferred to an outdoor garden. Unfiltered sun, constant fresh air, and a garden full of green instead of table legs and couches, dust-covered bookcases and kitchen smells. Couldn't this only be healthy? Some plants are simply not meant to be put outside, of course. Some plants need the structure of the pot, require the stability of a constant temperature, can only flourish with a floor and ceiling and walls as guideposts. When I look through my books about gardening now, I recognize the limp leaves and sagging frames of the plants on certain pages. This is called transplant shock. It usually begins as a kind of stasis, where the plant fails to thrive. For a period, the plant looks just fine, but in reality, it is already dead. Jesus, Kelly. 
I mean, I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you're going to make me cry. You go into marriage and relationships so blindly, you know? Yeah. You're right. It's just about hope mm-hmm. and fantasy and optimism. And God, I think about people who are like getting married in the church or in a religious tradition, in a Jewish tradition, and they have the rabbi or the priest or whoever go do a pre-marriage course about what your expectations are for marriage and how you're going to work things through and how you're going to bring your spirituality into it. And I, I was always too cool for that, too alternative for that, too artistic mm-hmm. for that, too independent for that, you know, nonconformist, whatever. I didn't change my name. I, my ex always hated that I didn't change my name, but I was like, why would I change my name? But I think I wanted a partnership and children mm-hmm. and it didn't get much more complicated in my brain than that. And God, how fucking dumb. <laughs> for me, not for you, you had your own experience, but I think back and I think, I really did not think this through. <laughs> <laughs> I did not think this through, but you have no way to think it through because you have no idea what marriage is actually going to be like. You really don't. And even if you think you do, And even if you have those classes, even if you and I sat here and made up what we thought would be the perfect class for every person with all our wisdom in 2023, in it and (laughs) been out of it. (laughs) Yes. And maybe we should do that. That would probably be a great money. (laughs) Ask these questions first, right? Think about these things so you know when it happens, right? But even then, the whole point is that if you're going to go on this journey with another person, you're both going to change. Yeah. And there's no predetermination of how or what direction you're going to move. And in some really beautiful partnerships, it's two people moving together through something and supporting each other with space and care. But sometimes you just go the other way. And it no matter what you do or what you would have asked beforehand, there's no way it could have worked. Or in my case, I would have had to really cut off so much of myself. I could have made it work, could but you? it would require, I think so many, I don't know about you. What but do you when mean I, made it work though? I mean, you could have <laughs> tolerated it. Tolerate. Yes. Yes. That's, that's exactly different. what I mean. And I think so many people do that because it's the less scary option sometimes. Yeah. I did it for a long time. Right. I tried to bend myself and shape myself and shut parts down of myself and push away intrusive thoughts that were actually my real self trying to tell me, get yeah. the fuck out of this. Yeah. Well, and failure, right? A broken marriage, a broken family, a failed marriage, right? All the language that we have. Children of divorce. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Non-custodial parent, custody dynamic, court ordered, whatever. All that shit that was echoes of my childhood. Mm. I was like, nope, nope, nope. Push it away. Exactly. And, And so why, right? My whole fear of being a single mother That, I think, came from growing up in the 1980s and watching the cover of newspapers and all of the awful language that is used to describe and help build this awful caricature of what a single mother must be like. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I don't recognize that. That's not me. That can't ever be me. But now I look around and my favorite people are <laughs> single mothers. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, this is what a bunch of badasses that I've been able to surround myself with. and Or people who have been at one point or another or just know. They just get it. And you do feel out on a limb by yourself. But hopefully you realize, oh, I can actually hold the limb up. I don't have to hope that it's not going to break. I can make it stand on my own. And that's, I think, something that I had no idea that I would understand and gain strength from later. Yeah, and at a certain point, you make a choice, right? That you're either going to lose yourself, Mm -hmm. and that is who your children are going to be raised by, is a mother who is living in a deep compromise where she's selling herself out for the sake of quote-unquote family, marriage, normalcy, 
social acceptability, all the things that come with a nuclear family unit, mm -hmm. um, a conventional looking life, or you go, hey guys, like this is really me. We're going to do this together. We're going to figure this out. And it might be bumpy, but I'm here and it's authentic and I'll always take care of you. That's certainly where I came to, where I could either just be someone I don't recognize or try to figure out a way to, to be fully myself and let them be fully themselves. And mm. okay, we give them things to talk about in therapy. We knew we were going to do that anyway. We just didn't know what yes. it was going to be. So hey, here's my <laughs> gift to you. <laughs> this is one of the topics you will be covering for the rest of your fucking life. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Sorry, but you're welcome also. <laughs> it's true. I think so many people, when they see this book, they, that's their first question. But what about the kids? They were there. They know what family life was like for us. And even if we were able to hide some of it, kids are really smart. Yeah. Um, or mine are anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, mine too. And the last thing I wanted to do was hurt them. Yeah. But very soon after their dad moved out, I got very clear validation from them that it felt better. Okay. And I was mm. like, oh, thank you, guys. Thank you for seeing it and for acknowledging. Um, That's beautiful. Yeah, it was huge. It's huge. There are moments in your book where you're writing about this sort of underlying dynamic with your ex, and you're not really saying what's really happening. Mm -hmm. And I, it's, I, I can only describe it as a feeling of menace or a feeling of preemptive defense or protection, that walking on eggshells feeling when you're with someone whose behavior is inconsistent or volatile or just counter to like the harmony you're trying to create with you and your little kids and your domestic life. How did you manage that? I know it's really hard to write about that because you don't want to vilify your kid's dad, but you also want to tell the truth. And I think this is a reality that a lot of women live with because a lot of men have two gears, which is like angry and horny. Um, <laughs> yep. You know, and hopefully we think we're marrying these sophisticated guys who have overcome that or who have evolved beyond that, especially if they're artists, they're really good at fucking hiding that in my experience. I'm curious to hear about that because that fear, that walking on eggshells, that preemptive defensiveness, that let me make everything okay so everything will be okay when you mm -hmm. cannot control whether things are going to be okay. Talk to me a little bit about that. Thank you for pointing that out. My hope is that those parts will be seen by the people who need to see them. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, a lot of women have read it and said privately or expressed that they do feel that what you described as an undercurrent, whereas for other readers, it's not even part of the mm. <laughs> part of the story. God bless so them. I think it depends. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and you're right. I made a decision. I mean, there were many drafts and one of the drafts was the angry draft for me. Mm -hmm. Right. This story took place over probably 20 years of my life. And most of the revision, not all of the writing, but most of the revision of this took place after I was able to have critical distance both in time and space and be out of the relationship so that pre-defense wasn't hopefully appearing on the page, too. Mm. One of my early drafts, my agent reminded me, look, every divorce story starts as a love story. And it was really difficult to go back mm. into the early parts and connect to why I fell in love with him, what parts of me still love about him. And yet I think it was necessary. And in a weird way that that softens some of that anger, too, because it's now... Mm -hmm in the past. It's now past tense. It, it's so powerful to be able to write in past tense and know that just like you, I can put this book on my shelf now and it's done. Mm. I can come to my home and 
not have to sit in the living room and wait that sort of are those steps on the on the porch coming are those tires on the driveway that feeling right i don't ever have to do that again which is such a relief and it's such a better place to write from i think it made me more generous on the page and it made it a more effective read because i i never wanted to write a sentence that was uh, jabbing at him just for the sake of jabbing at him. I wanted. Oh, you wanted to write. Well, <laughs> well, I did write that. <laughs> I didn't want to publish. That's yes, yeah, fair, <laughs> yes. Fair. And I think part of that is very selfishly. I want this book to be about me. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's there in these scenes. It is not about him. I did not want this book to be about him. That was a really important part of my reclaiming what happened and those years mm-hmm. that felt lost. And this is mine. It's so interesting how much inside a marriage we give to the partnership. We give to the parenting. We give to this idea of making everything work and being the harmony maker and being the creator of goodness. And I think like at a certain point, in my own marriage, I gave up on that, but still lived inside the dynamic and in this push-pull of wanting it to be a certain way and knowing it was never going to be that way. <laughs> and I'm so jealous of you having like written it, come out the other side, and being able to put the book on the shelf. <laughs> I know. Part of the reason I started this podcast is because I have a lot of shit to process and I would rather do it with smart people who have also been on different parts of this journey than by myself. And it's so interesting. I think when you opened your bookstore in Pennsylvania, which was clearly a terrible business decision (laughs) from the beginning. (laughs) I mean, a bookstore anywhere is a terrible business decision, but let alone... And Main Street of a small town where half the shops are closed up. That seemed to be a reemergence for you is where you started to decide you didn't need to be isolated. You didn't need to do it by yourself. You needed community. You needed other women. You needed books. You needed your art. Can you talk about that a little bit? And going back to what you said earlier about the undercurrents that you saw in this book, it's literature and so... The isolation happened to be physical as well, but this kind of isolation happens in relationships everywhere, and that's really where the bookshop saved me as a person. He couldn't keep me isolated in that way, and I returned to books and to people and to conversation and to friends and suddenly and you brought your new york life to pennsylvania yes. which is genius <gasps> as a survival mechanism <gasps> you're like come and do an event at my bookstore come and read at my bookstore when you had some people who swooped in and really helped oh. to give you perspective and help to save you yes in those circumstances i had this magical friend lauren who's a publicist and she came and helped with the bookstore, but helped me. She saw that I was really a shell of who she had once known year from years ago when we first met. And at one point, she was bidding on this necklace that I kind of liked, but I would never... But there was an auction, yes. a local auction. <laughs> There's a local auction. And she said, do you want that? Then you should bid on it. And so I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to bid on it. And I bid $25 or something. And she was like, come on, do you want it? Then bid like you want it. I was like, okay, fine, 30. <laughs> and she rolled her eyes. And later she winds up winning the bid. And I'm mortified because I think, oh my God, did she bid $100? And I'm just imagining trying to do all the math of trying to pay her back. And she just hands it to me and says, you need to remember what it's like to want something and get it. And that, (sighs) I couldn't hear it in that moment. No. But I needed in that moment, I needed that necklace. It's a reminder every time I put it on, it's okay for me to want something 
and it's okay for me to get it. And that was revolutionary in that moment. I was so wrung out. It really felt like I had been just stomped into the ground. I had nothing left. Did, didn't even have space for desire of my own. And it's really interesting working on the wanting book. The one thing that my co-editor and I were fielding over and over, we'd say to women, will you write for us? Will you, will you write for us? And so many came back and said, I tried to write the essay. I don't even know what I want. And it was mind-blowing. Like so many of us don't even give ourselves the space and the permission to really sit and think, what do I want? Ambition, desire for women is really fucking scary in 2023. That is nuts to me, but it's true. And you say in 2023 because it seems like we should be there already. We should know what we want. (laughs) We should be evolved. We should be in touch with our wants, our desires, our goals, our passions, our ambitions. Yeah, it's true. I also think that it's not just the marriage that had you feeling that lost. I think it's early motherhood. Mm -hmm. Early motherhood, when you have really young children and you are just in service and available to someone else's or two other Mm -hmm. people's or several other people's needs, it gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of self-esteem in one way, but it also removes your selfhood in another way. And I feel I've constantly been in a push-pull battle in my life as a mother between making sure my kids are good and making sure that they're okay, resisting the culture of over-parenting and over-planning and over-everything, identifying 100% with your children's accomplishments, interests, and successes, and trying to resolve everything for them. I think there's a culture of parenting that is really, to me, very weird in contrast to how I was raised, which was benign neglect. Although I apologize to my mother for saying (laughs) that. (laughs) She did a great job. (laughs) She was a working mom, and I'm a working mom, and have struggled really hard to be okay with my own ambition, my own desires, and my own wants, which are fucking intense Mm -hmm. and always have been. And I've always been driven and passionate. And I worked all the way through my kids' early childhood, but it took everything. It took everything. I did nothing but work and parent. The marriage falls away. Everything falls away when you're trying to be so of service and retain some crystal kernel piece of yourself um, so that you know that once they grow, you'll still have a place in the world. Um, Because I do think the culture is very happy to have us do all the work, but is not that happy accommodating our desire to balance work and motherhood or ambition or anything beyond being a person who is of service. Absolutely. And weirdly, I think what I experienced in dating as a divorced person. Oh, let's talk. Oh, (laughs) the balance is built in, in such a beautiful, surprising way that I did not understand. I mean, the first time that my kids left for an overnight, honestly, I sat on the couch and binge watched The Bachelor, ate a pint of ice cream, Uh a giant thing of popcorn and and had a bottle of wine and just wept. This is where am I? What happened? (laughs) Oh, my God. Where are my children? I I felt like I lost a limb and couldn't sleep because I'm so attuned. If they roll over, I know, (laughs) even if I'm asleep. And being able to break that psychic bond and not be in panic mode was really difficult. But once I could and once I was able to see every other weekend as this oasis of, oh, wait a minute, I can do whatever I want, <laughs> right? Oh, this is how my life was before <laughs> I got married. I mean, yeah. I could work the entire weekend. I could write the entire weekend. I could have sex the entire weekend. I could eat dessert for breakfast or not eat or just pour a whiskey at noon. I could do whatever I wanted, read the whole weekend. It was incredible see friends all weekend not see anybody not be touched touch a lot whatever i wanted and but i had to think about what i wanted and then make it happen and then sunday night i was able to show up 
for my kids in a way that I never would have been able to before. Because I... You are singing my song. (laughs) I was full. I filled myself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I could give it back. You were singing my song. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm just coming off of two weeks of my kids being at sleepaway camp (gasps) for the first time. (gasps) And it was insane how I felt. I mean, I have a boyfriend. We spent the whole time together. We're like in a new relationship. It got real intense and real deep. And we traveled together for the first time. And I was like, who am I? I'm a person who goes and does stuff because she wants to. We could fuck all day. It doesn't matter. No one's calling because they're not allowed. (laughs) It was insane. I have not felt the way I felt the last two weeks in 20 years. Mm -hmm. 20 years. I expected the transition back to be real bumpy. It hasn't been as bumpy because I was so happy to see the kids. I'm so happy they're here. I'm so happy for the things that I love about them Mm -hmm. and the ways in which they've grown from being more independent, but also the ways in which they still really need me. And my relationship is deepened. Holy moly. You don't get that inside of marriage. You never get that. Unless you and your partner have the kind of partnership, I imagine, right? I don't actually <laughs> know this. Yes, I this is hear what about I imagine. What this looks like. Yeah, what does this look like? <laughs> Just it, where you're both okay with the other person saying, I need something that has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with the family. I don't know. I'm not a relationship expert by any means, obviously. But okay. I wonder if you need to be married and then not be married to understand that. I don't think there's a question or an experience I could have had before marriage that would have allowed me to build my marriage into a space where I could claim the time and space and whether that's physical, brain space, time. I I just don't know that I would have understood until I had it that that was something I could ask for, should ask for, how to ask for it. I don't know. And I don't know how to communicate that. <laughs> I feel like I was constantly asking for that in my marriage. I was constantly saying, hey, I need alone time. Like I was an only child. I'm used to taking care of myself in a certain way and reconnecting with myself and having some quiet with myself or doing whatever the fuck I want. I lived alone for six years before I got married. This is who I am. And I kept bringing that to the table Mm. and not being heard because of everyone's attachment style and issues and all that stuff, right? And what you think a marriage is and what you think a marriage confers on you as a right to the other person. And I think being separated has confirmed for me how much I need that. Mm. Now, The guy that I'm dating also really needs space. And getting back from being together all the time, he was like, let's take some space. And I was a mess because I was like, but but I'm attached to you. (laughs) (laughs) And he acknowledged he felt it too. But he also was like, this is good for us. We both actually really need to do this, recharge. We've had a lot of togetherness. And he was right, but it was hard because it was like a good kind of attachment. Yeah. Where I was like, give me more of that. I want more of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So navigating all that stuff, I think it takes a really, really clear sense of yourself. And you're right. Having been through a thing where you didn't have that Mm -hmm. or that wasn't a conversation on the table or you said those needs and they didn't get met, that kind of reinvention seems only to be possible once you've had the marriage and divorce experience. And then you're redefining what role romance and relationship has in your life. And now, okay, so you told me that there was someone that you was you were seeing on those non-custodial weekends and it was hot and it was amazing. And now how long did that go on before you moved in together? Years. I'm taking notes. <laughs> I mean, I spent a long time alone and then dated like it was my job. I would make Uh like three dates on a Saturday morning, afternoon, night, and then found this beautiful person who had also was in the middle of a divorce. And we both agreed we want nothing serious, right? Because that's how it always starts. But then soon it became clear it was serious. And I think we were together for five years before we moved in. And- Wow. 
I think we were together for three years before he even met the kids. And honestly, it's lovely. But we were just saying the other day how much we miss the way it used to be. Because on those Oasis weekends, I would go to his apartment and I'm not worried about, oh, shit, did I get the toilet paper? Did you pay that bill? (laughs) All that stuff is creeping in. The domestic stuff is intense and it changes the texture of the relationship when you're doing like practical life things together versus when you're the person the other person turns to for fun, which is where I am. We're for the fun parts. That's what this is for. And it feels fucking incredible. And then sometimes... I future trip about it and I go, how is it possible? And how do we maintain this? And but someone said to me recently, this can go on as long as you want it to this way. Yes. And, and I think part of that, (laughs) I know it's magical thinking on my part, but part of that is not getting married again for me, right? This is how it works in my brain. He's my boyfriend. We, we own a house together. We are essentially domestic partners in every way, except on paper again, fuck the paper. I remember he took me to visit. He had done, he'd spent a long time in Iceland working and traveling and it was a really special place to him. It's also where he got married the first time. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to go back as a reclamation. And so we went last summer and he doesn't have kids. And it was the second trip where I was just pretty far from my kids. And mm-hmm. one of his dreams was to dive in this particular body of water. And it's the one place in the world where you can touch both tectonic plates. Ooh. And it's in uh, just unbelievable. So it's glacial water. It's freezing even in the summer. And so I'm putting all the gear on and there's that part of me saying, I'm a mom. I'm a gazillion miles away from my kids. Is this safe? I'm signing the waivers. I'm like, oh my God, I don't think I can do this. And and he just jumped in and I did it. And it was one of the best experiences of my whole life. Uncomfortable as hell. Afraid that I was going (laughs) to asphyxiate and freeze and all of the stuff. So beautiful under the water to actually touch both tectonic plates. It was just nothing I'd ever imagined. And sometimes you have to take a risk. And I, in that moment, I decided, okay, I'm going to follow him into this crazy thing. I know I'm going to be okay. And I feel like once the worst has already happened, right? Mm. And we're okay. Like you, Aaron, are amazing right now. It's hard. It's always going to be hard. We will never be able to go back to the beginning when we had that gift of illusion and fantasy. We will never be there again. That's sad. But it's also so freeing because we don't have to hang on to fantasy is so difficult and ridiculous and impossible. And we don't have to hold ourselves to that anymore. And there's something really beautiful in that. Oh, Kelly, (laughs) I'm assuming you're writing about this. I'm trying to. (laughs) I feel the landscape right Uh, around me. There you go. Now you know what I mean. (laughs) I do. It's literally land masses that you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, I like hearing that you have reinvented your life and that you are so deep in your work and that you are loving your kids and being a great mom and also having love and global adventures. <laughs> I mean, not much better than that, right? There isn't. And it's so much better than it was. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, well, because you're you and you're free and you're self-expressed and you're not holding everything together with every breath. Right. Right. That's that's what's untenable. Yeah. Yeah. For so many. Are there any contracts in your life that you still want to rewrite? Any sort of deal terms that you have with yourself, other people, the world, your profession? Ooh. Oh, that's a really hard question. 
I think what I notice in myself and in a lot of my female students, when they or when I raise my hand for something, I start with, I'm sorry, and then continue. Mm. I do it in my daily life. I do it in actual meetings, in professional life. And I notice myself doing that even in my relationship, which I work so hard to make these boundaries and signposts and show up the way I want to show up. And yet I still, oh, I'm sorry, (laughs) raising my hand and apologizing for having a thought, for having an opinion, for being a person. And I don't notice that in just the way that we started this conversation with the obsession of gender inequalities, the question of male and female. I don't really notice that in the men in the classroom. It's not something that's... That's the patriarchy at work. Yes. And and I think (laughs) it's so... Don't have to apologize. Yeah, you belong here. You belong here. And for a long time with my two kids who were both boys... I've had the impulse to, in order to be equal, I try to make them smaller, Mm. to be fair to girls. And I think that's wrong. I (laughs) need to not apologize when I raise my hand and get bigger. I mean, it goes back to that plant that I read about. I want to take up the space that I require. Mm. Yeah, without without apology. apology. Mm -hmm. You deserve that. Yeah. We all do. Yeah, we all do. We all do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm grateful to you for this conversation. So amazing. And um, so excited for you for the life you're continuing to reinvent on a daily basis. Can't wait to read more of your work. And thank you for coming on. Oh, my gosh. This conversation was incredible. And thank you for the work that you're doing. It's life changing, Aaron. I hope you know that. Thank you. I'll just I'll just say thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Hotter Than Ever. If you found yourself resonating with any of what Kelly and I talked about in this episode today, if you found yourself nodding your head or going, mm, or shaking your head like I do when I'm in these conversations because I'm feeling it so deeply, please follow the show on whatever platform you're listening to right now. Tell your best friend about it and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Hotter Than Ever is produced by Erica Gerard and Podkit Productions. Our interim associate producer is Melody Carey. She's doing a great job. Music is by Chris Keating with vocals by Isa Fernandez. Come back next week. We've got another great conversation for you. I promise it's going to be so, so good. I already recorded it. You know that, right? I don't do it in real time. Yeah, you knew that. <laughs> <laughs>